Hey, good morning to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good Tuesday morning. Last week, I took the week off, was on vacation, which was rather nice, refreshed, ready to go. Cooler out today after the heat wave, and it, and it feels good, and it is beginning to feel like football season. A lot of things going on in the world of football. We're certainly going to talk a lot of NFL. The Yankees lose late last night on the West Coast. Shohei Otani, a part of that loss. We'll talk about the Yankees and what they've been doing. An update, I guess, on Jack Eichel, and maybe not the update that many people are expecting, but that's going on, and a few other things to kick around this morning as well. I want to start, though, in the NFL. The Bills completed their preseason, an undefeated preseason, which gets you absolutely nothing, on Sunday afternoon at Orchard Park, a steamy Orchard Park, I should say Saturday afternoon. It's funny, the last two preseason games for the Bills – I I watched, and, and again, I don't put a ton of stock in the preseason. It, it's just to see things, to see how comfortable guys look, see some guys possibly who are on the bubble. And today is cut-down day throughout the NFL. You're going to be hearing names throughout the day of people getting cut that you wouldn't have expected. And trades, Brandon Bean made a trade yesterday when he sent – a defensive end to Carolina because, of course, he did. And it's one of those things that as you go through, you trim off some pieces. But watching the Bills the last two preseason games, two different thoughts came into my head that equaled the same final thought. The first game was the Trubisky game. Mitch Trubisky goes back to Chicago The Bears playing a lot of their starters. The Bills not playing any starters, really going with backups. And the Bills' backups just beat the crap out of the Bears' starters. It was an embarrassment for Chicago. And if you watched some plays by Gregory Rousseau or A.J. Appenenza in, in the play of Mitch Trubisky, you realize the depth of this Bills' team going into this season, which has such high expectations. The Bears aren't going to be a team that I think are going to play long in January. I I think they're at best a 500 squad, and I say that if Justin Fields puts together some magic, maybe some things can happen. They're going into this season with Andy Dalton as their starter. I don't have a ton of hope for Matt Nagy figuring things out this year. I I just don't see a very interesting team in Chicago yet. They'll be on primetime a bunch. That's the other thing about the Bears. Because of the television market they play in, regardless of their outlook, their prospects, they're going to be on TV. And it's always a boring game when the Bears are on TV. This is... Years and years now that the Bears just haven't been very good. They're not very interesting, but yet we're subject to watching them. And their fan base, I get it, strong, should not be on the Sunday night game of the week. But they will be. But Mitch Trubisky stood out in this game, and it was fun to watch him go back to Chicago, be the best quarterback on the field, even though the Bears had given up on him, and show something that, Again, I don't expect Trubisky to go anywhere. I expect the Bills to keep him with the thought of if something happens to Josh Allen, Trubisky's going to be the guy who can win games for them. That's this type of year. But if the right offer came across, Brandon Bean certainly might be tempted. Now, I say the right offer. Remember that this past weekend, Gardner Minshew, who put up some decent numbers in his years in Jacksonville, was traded to Philly for a six-round pick. A six-round pick is not worth jeopardizing the depth of your quarterback room in a season that you want to potentially win a Super Bowl. So I don't think anything happens there, but certainly worth keeping an eye on. The second preseason game that I want to talk about happened Saturday, and it was Kids Day, 1 o'clock game, very hot. Great to see the crowd at Ralph Wilson Stadium. Yes, I know, by the way, that that's not the current name. I'm never going to refer to it 
as the current name. Ralph Wilson Stadium was loud. It was rocking. It was great to see the fans there. I can only imagine what it's going to be a week from Sunday when the Steelers show up. Packers, Bills, Packers rested everybody, but Sean McDermott wanted to see his starters, wanted to get them a taste of the game. And the first takeaway involves Josh Allen, who you're seeing if you're watching this right now on YouTube. Josh Allen showed me his comfortability with this offense, his ability to see things pre-snap, which I've said for a couple years, with Josh's physical traits, the thing that's either going to make him a great quarterback or a good quarterback throughout his career is going to be his ability to recognize and read defenses. And watching what he did, how he did it, he looked like a quarterback that I never thought he would become. And that doesn't mean I didn't think Josh Allen was going to become a good quarterback. I actually, early on in his days, was in the Josh Allen camp, and I remained there. What I didn't think he'd become was a guy who could complete over 70% of his passes. I didn't ever think he'd be a dink and dunk quarterback, which think of Drew Brees in that Saints offense in his greatest years. Short, controlled passing game, accurate, ball out of his hands quick, 7 yards, 10 yards, 5 yards, 12 yards, constant movement, pre-snap recognition, quick throws. That was Josh Allen against the Packers. And that was intriguing to see. The first drive, he was 10 for 11. The incompletion was a great read by him because there was nothing there. He threw it in the ground. Lived to play another day. Smart football. The last completion was an absolute laser to Gabriel Davis for a touchdown. And it was a throw that very few players in the NFL can make in that way. And even on that throw, he he looked off the safety enough to, to create that throw. The wisdom of playing a couple years is coming to Josh Allen. Now, look, it's preseason. The Packers are playing the backups. I get all that. But just watching him control the offense, watching him make the proper reads, his ability to be accurate, quick release, getting the ball out, it was very fun to watch. He played the entire first half, which actually surprised me a little bit that McDermott put him back out there after such a great opening drive. They didn't run the ball at all. They just wanted Josh to throw it. He did. Threw another touchdown pass where he held onto it, took a hit, and made the throw. And it was everything you wanted to see. 20-26, two touchdowns, 194 yards. This is the Bills' offense in a nutshell. And there was no Stephon Diggs out there. By all accounts, Diggs will be good to go when opening day comes around. But You're not going to put him out there prematurely in a preseason game. Manuel Sanders was a key part of it. Cole Beasley, a key part of it. There were a lot of things that went on in that game that were great to see. The offensive pass protection, having Deion Dawkins back. And again, the battle that he had with COVID took a lot out of him, but he is playing his way into shape, and it was good to see him back out there. So the offense looked great defensively. What you're starting to see is the depth on that defensive line. And today on Cutdown Day, it's going to be very, very interesting to see. The trade yesterday that Brandon Bean made when he sent Johnson to, to Carolina, it, it's one of those things that, that when you look at the trade, it's not a big deal. He gets a six-round pick. It's, it's draft capital. It's something you can use to manipulate your earlier picks or maybe get a depth piece later on. He's done a good job in the past drafting late, so getting that piece I thought was important. But more important than that, there's a log jam on that defensive line. And when you look at it, This is what I expect to happen. You've got the starters at defensive end in Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison. I don't believe either of them go anywhere. I think they're both there. And and right behind them, the young guys, A.J. Appenenzo, who's had a great preseason, and Gregory Rousseau, who's flashed in the preseason, they're right there. But you've also got F.A. Obata, 
who has made good plays. Remember, this is a guy they went out and got from Carolina to give them depth on that defensive line. So there's a lot to like at the defensive end position, even with the trade that was made yesterday. You know Sean McDermott likes to rotate his defensive linemen. That means those guys likely all see time. There's also the special teams component, Apodenza, the backup long snapper. Not sure they want to go into a regular season game with him doing it, but he did it adequately against the Packers on Saturday. Starla Tulele, his effect is already being seen with Ed Oliver. Ed Oliver has made himself known in the preseason games. And again, I've said this all along, the biggest difference, in my opinion, this year to last, can be Starla Tulele taking up tackles, taking up blockers, I should say, to create lanes for Ed Oliver and to keep people off the feet of the linebackers, Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds. Oliver has looked very good. Those two guys will will start at defensive tackle and, in my opinion, be backed up by Justin Zimmer. And here's the question. Harrison Phillips has had a nice camp, but he's dinged. How injured he is, to me, will answer the question whether or not the Bills keep five or four defensive tackles. Because the fifth is Vernon Butler. And Butler is a good player who has a fairly high salary. Now, if Harrison Phillips is healthy, I think Butler might be a trade candidate, and I'm sure there are teams out there willing to give something for him. Again, you can't trade him if Harrison Phillips isn't going to be good to go because you need four defensive tackles to get ready. Phillips, who last year didn't have a good year coming off the ACL the year before, is a kid they love in Buffalo. He's done a lot off the field. He's been a great ambassador for the organization. But he's been playing very well and looks like he's all the way back from that ACL he suffered two years ago. So that's a key thing to watch today as we go through this day. Vernon Butler is going to be the answer to the Harrison Phillips injury question. If Phillips' injury is not significant and can be good to go, I would expect Vernon Butler to be traded and or released by the end of the year. Offensively, to me, an area to watch is the interior of the offensive line because although I think there's some decent play there, it's also, in my opinion, the second weakest position group on this Bills team, the weakest being the tight end position. You look at Mitch Morris at center, he's very solid, one of the higher-paid players on the team. I don't think he's worth the money that he's getting paid. He's somebody who I think next year moves on from that position. John Feliciano did a good job backing up and in t- at times replacing Morse last year. So Feliciano will certainly be there and start at one of the guard positions. The other guard position, they'd love it if Cody Ford would have won the position outright. I don't know that he has. Ike Boker, who's coming back from a COVID situation of his own, he's been playing well and did play well last year. But beyond that, there isn't a ton of depth. When you look at the tackle position, Darrell Williams, Deion Dawkins, the starters, two young guys, Likely to be backups there, Spencer Brown in this year's third-round pick, Tommy Doyle, fifth-round pick. I would expect both to make the team along with Ryan Bates. Now, Bates can be somebody you can move inside as well, so he'll be a valuable piece. But watch the waiver wire after today. The Bills, I think, will would love to grab a veteran guard or backup center to give them a little bit of depth in the interior of that offensive line. Again, this is a year where you don't keep youth over veteran because you're trying to develop somebody. This is a year you keep veterans who can plug and play because you're looking to win a championship this year. Philosophies change with outlooks. This year, I think the outlook for Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott is very much an outlook of, We're trying to win a championship, or it should be, in my opinion, because they are that close. Something to keep an eye on there. The other position of note, and it's, again, 
potentially an injury situation could dictate it, is the wide receiver position. Of course, Cole Beasley, Stefan Diggs, Emmanuel Sanders, Gabriel Davis are your first four. Isaiah McKenzie has been great in camp, but he's also dinged. Shoulder injury suffered in practice. If he's good to go, they're your first five. Traditionally, a team will keep six wide receivers. I could see a situation this year where the Bills keep seven. Jake Kumaro has been very good in camp. You know Aaron Rodgers loves this guy. The other thing is he's been excellent on special teams, and let's not discount the special teams effect because, again, this is a team built to win now. Special teams, go back to the old Jimmy Johnson saying of three phases to the game, offense, defense, special teams. If I win two out of three of those phases, I'm going to win the game. I win three out of three, I win easily. I win one out of three, I lose almost every time. Special teams are that important, and Jay Kumaro gives the Bills a very good special team there. Now, the question is, if those are your six, do they go to seven with a kid that they drafted this year and really like a lot? And it's Marquez Stevenson, and you saw his ability to return in the Bears game when he returned a punt for a touchdown. His speed is unquestioned. His ability looks like it's real. But again, he's somebody who's dinged with a with a head injury right now. So how does that go? Can they sneak him on IR and maybe bring him back later this season? I don't think he'll be somebody who, if you expose them to waivers, will get through and you'll be able to add him to the practice squad. I think somebody else may reach out and grab him. The last position I want to talk to talk about. On this cutdown day is the quarterback position. Obviously, Josh Allen is your starter. There's no question there. Mitch Trubisky is going to be your number two. And again, unless for some reason there is a trade that simply blows away Brandon Bean, it looks like he will be in that situation. He'll be good to go. The other two quarterbacks are going to be interesting. Because Davis Webb was on the squad last year as a backup and did a great job of, he was actually on the practice squad, did a great job in the quarterback room. He's a future offensive coordinator, potentially head coach. He knows the Bills offense as well as anybody not named Brian Dable and is a great asset to have in that quarterback room. So when you're, Thinking about the room, can you sneak him through waivers, have him on the practice squad, get the benefit of that knowledge in your quarterback room? Is that something that can work, or would somebody else reach out to grab him for the same reason? The other player, and and it was, I thought, intriguing to see how much time they gave Jake Fromm in the last preseason game. And I think in, in part it was to keep... Davis Webb off of the film, but Jake Fromm played pretty well and he showed some things. Remember, this is a kid they drafted in the fourth round out of Georgia last year. He's somebody who they like. He's shown enough ability. Jake Fromm is an interesting guy to teams around the league. And if the Bills, they're only going to keep two quarterbacks on the active roster. Can they keep Jake Fromm and Davis Webb both? On the practice squad. I don't think they can. And I think it's going to be something where somebody else takes either one or both of these guys as much as Brandon Bean would love to bring them back. So cut down day, always interesting. And as we look around the NFL, you're starting to see some of the cuts come through. The Cowboys cut Ben DiNucci as expected if you've been watching Hard Knocks. Not a big surprise there. Cooper Rush hopefully will be Dak Prescott's backup. I still think the Cowboys have made a mistake not going out and getting Gardner Minshew. You're starting to see other names come in, but the biggest name of the day just dropped. Cam Newton has been released by the New England Patriots. Now, to say this is a big surprise, I'm surprised that it happened before the season. I would have expected the Patriots to go into the season 
with Mac Jones as their starter, but Cam Newton is the backup, an insurance policy, and somebody, a veteran leader to lead on, lean on for Mac Jones. Jones has looked very good in the preseason. This is a Patriot offense that's built around the running game, even with the trade of Sony Michelle, and I'll get to that in a minute. They've got depth at the running back position. They've rebuilt their offensive line. They've brought in the two tight ends in Hunter Henry and the I'm drawing a blank on the other name, but they're going back to that two tight end run the football offense, and that's what you do with a young quarterback. Mac Jones has looked really good in the preseason, made some throws that show he's got a little bit of veteran in him, throwing guys open, back shoulder throws, things like that, allowing his guys only to make plays. It's going to be interesting to see how this Patriots team does this year because they spent a lot of money in free agency. They're expe- you don't spend money in free agency unless you expect to win now. Belichick, let's face it, as great as he's been, he doesn't have a ton of time left. And the Belichick-Brady argument currently is heavily favored in the size of Brady because he left and won a championship. And when he left, New England didn't make the playoffs. So you start to look at that. It's obvious to me that it was much more Brady over Belichick. Cam Newton, Newton getting released, I think, makes the AFCs very interesting. Look at the quarterbacks. Josh Allen's in his fourth year. Now he's an MVP candidate. You've got Mac Jones as a rookie, an unknown quantity. Zach Wilson in New York, the next Jets quarterback. We'll see how things have gone. And to his credit, after a terrible start at training camp, he's rebounded and looked good. Again, camp means very little when you evaluate performance, but he's shown a comfortability and he's shown his abilities to make throws. The Jets have an offensive line situation going on again that may be a problem. And Then you've got Tua Tonga-Viola down in Miami, and for all the improvements that he has shown and the confidence supposedly that the Dolphins have in Tua, there's still a lot of talk about Deshaun Watson somehow ending up in Miami. Now, Deshaun Watson's situation, we've talked about it, is very unique. But if you believe in your young quarterback, Tua, why are you even engaging in conversations about a guy who may not play it down ever again in the league based on his legal troubles? It's very befuddling. So the AFC is a very interesting division. It's going to start a second-year quarterback, two rookie quarterbacks, And then, of course, Josh Allen is a fourth-year vet, and he's the dean of quarterbacks in the AFC East, all of which could play into the Bills' benefit. Remember, New England, all those years, dominating the AFC East, allowing them to play home playoff games, the Bills need to do the same thing and take advantage of the young quarterbacks they're facing in division. If the Bills don't go... Four and two or better in the division this year, I think it's a colossal failure by this team. I, I really do. When you look at the outlook of this team, you got to win both games against the Jets. The Jets are going to be a bottom feeder again. They're too young, too inexperienced, and too weak to contend. Miami's going to be good, but again, the question's with Tua. So if they split with Miami, and while I think New England's going to be better, at minimum, a split there. That's four and two. That's the minimum that's acceptable for the Bills in the AFC East. Around the league, I mentioned the Gardner Minshew trade to Philadelphia. Look, Jalen Hurts showed some things last year when he got the opportunity to start late in the year. He also showed some things that he wasn't quite ready to do. Minshew's a good quarterback. The problem... And, and I say it problem for the Eagles is that players love Gardner Minshew. He's got an it factor that's 
very good. And it allows him to play better than his ability because the players around him play better. Now, what's scary about that is when you've got a young quarterback you're trying to develop and the players may like playing for the other guy better, it's not a healthy situation. And I I, I like this move in one way for Philly. It gives them depth and an opportunity, but I don't know that Philly's ready to win now. I think that it was more important this year to make sure you do everything you can to make Jalen Hurts your quarterback of the future, and I think this goes against that. The team that I thought should have made the play for Gardner Minshew was the Dallas Cowboys. Cooper Rush is their backup quarterback. Dak Prescott, if you've been watching Hard Knocks, is throwing again, but I don't know how healthy he is, and I don't know how many games you can expect him to start. To go into the season with Dak and Cooper Rush as your quarterbacks, I I simply don't think that's a well-prepared roster. And go figure, Jerry Jones, the GM, in my opinion, failing yet again to do the job that needs to be done. So very interesting that Philly would make that move. I didn't like it from Philly's standpoint what it means for Jacksonville though is that Trevor Lawrence will be a day one starter and if you watched any of the Trevor Lawrence performance against the Cowboys in the last preseason game on Sunday you'll see what the hype was all about with this kid coming into the league he's the highest rated player to come into the league at that position since Andrew Luck Andrew Luck was the highest rated player to come into that position since Peyton Manning so you're talking about somebody who universally was was regarded as a phenomenal prospect, and you saw a lot of that against the Cowboys on Sunday. And again, preseason, I get it, but there are certain things. It doesn't matter if you're playing seven-on-seven or pickup in the street. Certain throws, certain abilities, it, it really, really is a gift. And Trevor Lawrence is as gifted of a quarterback as you will see. Now, the Jags... I love this comparison. There's a lot of discussion about them being a team that's very similar to the team that Jimmy Johnson took over with the Dallas Cowboys back in the 80s. You look at the team last year, they were one win, the first-round pick. Both teams were one-win teams before the college coach with the pedigree, Urban Meyer in this case, not Jimmy Johnson, comes in. Both used their number one pick on a franchise quarterback, Troy Aikman and Trevor Lawrence. So there is a a whole lot of similarities there, but I think there's a lot of work to be done. The offensive line in Jacksonville isn't very good. Defensively, they've got some pieces, but I don't think it's a strong team. I think this is maybe a four or five win team, but it, it could be a lot like Peyton Manning's rookie year. If you go back to what he did as a member of the Colts, he threw I think it was an NFL record, 27 or 28 interceptions. But you also saw the growth of the guy as he became one of the greatest starting quarterbacks of all time. Trevor Lawrence, I think you will see growth in him. He will make plays. He will have games where you see it. But I think overall this year, it's going to be a struggle for Urban Meyer, Trevor Lawrence. They lost Travis Etienne, the the running back who many people wanted the Bills to draft at the end of the first round. They took him at the end of the first round. He's gone for the year. They do have James Robinson, who's been a very good, as good an undrafted player as we've seen in a while. So they still have some depth there. Speaking of running backs with injuries, J.K. Dobbins, the Ravens running back, going to be out for the year. And, And this is one of those... He played two plays in the preseason. It's it's just the nature of the game. It's, it's, it's almost impossible for people to keep players healthy. J.K. Dobbins was, in my opinion, set to have a big, big year and take a lot of heat off of Lamar Jackson. Ravens will be a good team. They're going to be in a tough, tough division. Cleveland's very good. I think Pittsburgh's going to be good. And and the Ravens, I think, are a playoff team at worst. So losing J.K. Dobbins is big. The Steelers are an interesting team to watch today on cutdown day. One, Dwayne Haskins is likely to make the team. And he's trying to regain his career 
number 15 overall pick quarterback was too immature and not ready in Washington. They cut bait with him. The Steelers see a maturity that the Redskins, I'm sorry, the Washington football team did not see. But I don't think he gets a chance to play this year because Mason Rudolph is the primary backup. But I think going forward, Hopkins, Hoskins, Haskins, how am I, how am I doing today? My vacation mode still kicking in. Haskins is a much better prospect than is Mason Rudolph. So long term, I think this is a big thing. But the more important thing to me to watch today is a kid from right here in Rochester, Jameer Jones. Jameer Jones had a fantastic preseason. One Steeler publication named him the preseason MVP. Now, that means nothing. But when you're an undrafted kid trying to make the 53-man roster, it means a lot. Six tackles and a sack in their final preseason game this past weekend. He has been a beast. The kid from Notre Dame and many people had written him off because last year he didn't really get a chance. He didn't stick on anyone's fifth on anyone's practice squad. But this year the Steelers brought him in and he has been a great find in camp and love the fact that we potentially now have one of our own from the 5A5 playing in the NFL. So keep an eye on Jameer Jones, and hopefully, regardless if he sticks in Pittsburgh on the 53, he'll be on a practice squad somewhere. But I got to think the tape that he put out there in the preseason may get him an opportunity to be on a 53 somewhere to start the season. So good on you, Jameer. Well done. The Rams have had an issue at running back. They lost Cam Akers earlier in the preseason, and Cam Akers, I thought, was somebody who was going to have a really good year this year for the Rams. That's a very good offense, and you know now with Matthew Stafford as a quarterback, they're going to look to even expand that offense. Having him in the backfield, I thought, would give them a balance, while obviously the injury, the trade for Sony Michelle. Michelle's a guy that, if he's healthy, I think can have a really nice year for the Rams. I'm not saying he's going to gain 1,500 yards, but I could see him as a thousand yard back catching passes. I think he's a back who the Patriots may have given up on a little bit because he didn't become what they thought he was going to become when they drafted him in the first round. But this is a good player and I think he's going to a good situation. So keep your eye on that. Some names to keep an eye on. As we go forward, and I'm just going to give you a couple. The Zach Ertz situation is still out there. Do the Eagles keep him? You know, today's the day. Today's the decision. Do you keep that salary on your books? Do you look to get something back for him? Or do you, do you decide to move on? And if he's a free agent because he gets cut, the Bills got to be the first team to call him. He is exactly the last piece of the puzzle, if you will, for the Bills offense. That tight end room, it's going to have Dawson Knox. It's going to have Josh Allen's college teammate, Hollister. But that's it. And those guys, they're they're okay. They're not anyone that the defense is worried about beating them. Zach Hurts would be. So today's the day where the question gets get answered. Does Philly keep him? and decide to play with that salary, or do they decide to move on? So keep an eye on that. And and, and in Dallas, this is something that Hard Knocks hasn't hit on, in my opinion, enough. And, And here's where I think the teams control the narrative of Hard Knocks a little bit. The Cowboys have spent very, very high draft capital, and in one case, a lot of money, on guys who I think there's a chance are either gone after today or relegated to second string after today. And and that's linebackers Jalen Smith, the kid from Notre Dame, and Leighton Vanderesh. Smith, the second-round pick who was going to be a top-five pick and then that awful knee injury, got his way, built his way back and became a player. He was rewarded with a big contract. Vanderesh was 
the kid who was picked in the first round and showed flashes of being a very good player. Can't stay on the field. Can't stay healthy. Greatest ability is availability, and Leighton Vander Esch hasn't been that. Both currently are second teamers. The Cowboys drafted Micah Parsons out of Penn State. He's looked very good in this preseason. Keanu Neal has been very good. They brought him over from Atlanta. And then you've got a kid who they really may have stumbled upon in the fourth round, Jabril Cox out of LSU. So what do you do with Vander Esch and Jalen Smith? Trade's possible, although you can't. I guess you can, but do you keep all of that talent at the linebacker position or do you try and make something out of it? And and the Cowboys, unfortunately, are are up against it because, again, the salary of Jalen Smith is going to make him tough to deal. If you cut him, there's a ton of dead money that you got to eat against the cap. Van Der Esch, his value as a player is good, but because of his lack of durability, he's somebody that I'm not sure you get something for. It's just going to be intriguing to see how much they keep at the linebacker position. Those are some big names that I think could go elsewhere. So the NFL certainly getting very interesting on cutdown day. The Bills and all other teams by 4 o'clock today have to be at a 53-man roster. And when you think about it, it, it's it's interesting this week because Tuesday, today, the 53, the season starts a week from Thursday. So there is a lot of time for activity prior to the first game and the first weekend of games. So if there are players cut, you're going to see a lot of movement in the next few days as the second wave of, if you will, free agency gets underway. Keep an eye on that. Major League Baseball, we haven't talked in a bit. It's been a couple weeks. Since then, the Yankees have been on fire. And now they're in the midst of a three-game losing streak. But these things happen. The Yankees winning 13 in a row at the end of August have not only put themselves back in position to make the playoffs, they put themselves in very good position to make the playoffs. They're now seven games behind Tampa, which that doesn't sound good. But they're two games up on the Red Sox. They're also two games up in the wild card. So they're in very good shape. They have the third best record in the American League. This is a team that at the trade deadline, many people, me included, didn't think they had an opportunity to improve themselves enough this year to make the playoffs. Now they do. And the guy you're seeing on the screen, Giancarlo Stanton, has been a big part of it. Stanton and Judge, again, they're healthy. They haven't been healthy, but they are. And you've got Stanton with 25 home runs, Judge with 29, both playing every day, Gallo coming over, giving them another big bat. Now, I don't care that he's hitting 150. This guy's hit some big home runs. Rizzo missed those games with COVID, and maybe it was a blessing in disguise because he's back doing what you expected him to do. But while he was gone, Luke Voigt came through and played well. Now, look, I'm not a Luke Voigt fan, and I know he led the majors in, in home runs last year in the strike-shortened season. I think he's a good player, and if he's your starting first baseman and maybe your fourth or fifth best hitter, it's good. Luke Voigt certainly thinks he's a better player than he is. He called himself a great player and said that he had some done some great things for the organization, and he deserved to play every day over Anthony Rizzo. He didn't mention Rizzo by name. He said he deserves to play every day. You like the player's confidence. You want a player who expects to play every day. But let's be honest. Anthony Rizzo is a much better player than Luke Voigt. But if Luke Voigt's playing well, getting him at bats is something that can only help your team. And the Yankees have been able to do that Work him in at first base, giving Rizzo time, using him as a DH, giving either Judge or Stanton a day off, Stanton playing a little outfield. Again, he's been healthy, so you can do that. And Gallo being a very good outfielder, you want him out there as well. The other part of the Yankees is that they're getting healthy 
in other areas as well. Garrett Cole, Jordan Montgomery back from the COVID list. Cole's been very good. Last night, they had Dallas Keuchel come back and make a start. Three months since his last start. So he's back. Didn't go as well as you'd hope. Gave up a grand slam and, and didn't get out of the fifth inning. But it's still another step forward with a guy who's working his way back. Luis Severino is on the the way back again. Remember earlier this year, working back from Tommy John, had that groin injury, it set him back. He's now once again making his way back. Depth pieces coming back to the Yankees is going to be very good. I think they still have a problem in their bullpen. Roldis Chapman has been better. He struggled for a bit. I think he'll be fine. Zach Britton is injured. He's on the sixth. It looks like he might need surgery to to remove bone chips from the elbow. So that looks like a season ender there, putting more pressure on guys like Shane Green. and, And can he get the job done? Jonathan Loisega moves back a little bit, and, and, and he's been very good. There's a lot to like about the way this team has been playing. And it's funny that you haven't heard Brian Cashman and Aaron Boone's jobs being threatened in the last month. It's very intriguing. While the Yankees have been hot and everything seems to be falling into place, on the other side of New York, it's gone in the opposite direction. On July 31st, the Mets were leading the division by four games. Today's August 31st. They are seven games back in the division. They went 8-19 in the month of August. And that's not even the worst thing that's going on right now. On Sunday, after a, a nice win, Javi Baez was meeting with the media and Javi had his son sitting on his lap and it was a nice conversation and They talked about the new gesture that the Mets players are doing when they get a hit. You see this all across baseball. Guys do something to the dugout. Well, the the Mets' new gesture is a thumbs-down gesture. And Baez was asked about it. And Javi, unfortunately, decided to be honest about what it meant. And the thumbs-down was a gesture to the fans who have been booing the team for their inept play over the past month or so. And Francisco Lindor, part of it, and Kevin Pillar, part of it. This is something that you could do without telling anyone what you're doing. But now that Javi Baez has said it, it led to a statement by Mets president Sandy Alderson, who is going to speak to the team today calling the actions and the message to the fans completely unacceptable. Steve Cohen, the owner, tweeted out that I re- I wish we could go back to the days when the biggest controversy was whether or not they should wear their black jerseys on Friday nights. It's a mess. And Javi Baez has been anything but spectacular with the Mets. I get it that in Chicago, when you break the curse and win for the first time, you get a lot of, you get a lot of built up credibility. And that credibility, you're basically on scholarship in Chicago. They didn't really get after Javi Baez. But in New York, he doesn't have that built up credibility. Fans were hopeful to see him play a great second base and hit some big home runs. The best video that's been of Javi Baez is him swinging and missing on a pitch by 10 feet. Literally, missed this pitch by 10 feet. That's the viral video of Javi Baez as a Met. His Mets career is going to go down second only to the Marlins career of Mike Piazza. I mean, to say this guy is one foot out the door already is an understatement, and frankly, other than the Cubs bringing him back, I can't see a whole lot of people lining up to pay this guy a bunch of money based on the last couple years' performance. And again, this is a player who's as good defensively as there is in the game, either at second or short. He is a great defensive player. Excellent base runner. Exciting to watch. 
He hit a home run the other day, 444 feet. Absolute bomb. He's got power. But his lack of pitch recognition and selection is unparalleled. It's it's truly amazing. And now you throw with it his inability to handle a tough market and teams booing him. Places Javi Baez can't play, Philadelphia, Boston, New York. You've taken those teams right out of it. Now, can he go somewhere like Atlanta and play? Yeah, but they're not going to bring him in. They've got a great shortstop at Dansby Swanson and a great second baseman in Ozzie Albies. He's not going to Atlanta. He's not going to a good team in a secondary big market. I don't know where he ends up. Seattle? <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is a guy who thought he was going to get a contract similar to the contract of Francisco Lindor. And while I bring up his name, Lindor was brought in and paid to be the face of the franchise in New York. He's got a 10-year contract starting next year for $340 million. He's had an awful year this year. He hasn't been nearly the player the Mets expected him to be. And now he's caught up in a controversy where he's thumbs downing the fans in New York. The fans who pay his salary. And he is supposed to be the face of the franchise. A team that never seems to get it right did exactly the right move. They made these two moves, the signing and, and trading for of Francisco Lindor. Nobody criticized that move. Absolute no-brainer. Trading for, at the time, Javi Baez to bring him in to, to play shortstop while Lindor was out, everyone thought that was a no-brainer. Great move. And yet both of these moves right now look like moves that are going to set this franchise back yet again. They just can't seem to get it right. Their best player, Jacob deGrom, is now throwing the ball. When I say throwing, he's having a catch. And by the way, it's not having a catch. He's playing catch. You don't have a catch. There's one thing very wrong with the Field of Dreams thing. You want to have a catch? No. You don't take a shot. You do a shot if you're a drinker. And you don't have a catch. You play catch. It's just what you do. Where are you going to take your shot? Are you going to take it to the other room? No, you do it. You drink it. Anyway, enough of that. The Mets, they do the right thing, and it always turns out to be the wrong thing. They need to go George Costanza and do the opposite. If everything you do is inherently wrong, do the opposite, and you'll be right. That's what the Mets need to do. That's got to be their new philosophy going forward. There's another team in Major League Baseball that struggled mightily, and it's the Boston Red Sox. And this is one of those I've said, and I stand by, if you say position players, give me your three best players, nobody has three better players than Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers, and J.D. Martinez. The Red Sox are that good. Now, the depth may not be there, the pitching may not be there in the bullpen, but they've struggled in the break. In On July 30th, they were in fir- first place by a half a game. Here we are, August 31st. They're now nine games behind the Rays. Let's not forget this. The Rays this year, talk about playing to your opponent's strengths and or taking advantage of your opponent's strengths. They won 18 out of 19 games against the Baltimore Orioles. Think about that. 18-1 and one against a team within the division. The Orioles are going to lose over 100 games for the third year in a row. They're a joke of a franchise. Fortunately for the Red Sox, they've got six games left with the Orioles. They've also got three games left with the Nationals, who are a team that waved the white flag at the trade deadline by moving Max Scherzer, Trey Turner, among others. So that's one of those situations that maybe the Red Sox can get back in it. But they have not played good baseball since the end of the month. Well, the Jack Eichel situation has taken yet another turn or turns. Last week, he hired a new agent. Pat Brisson is the agent. And this is 
a big-time agent. He is the Scott Boris of NHL hockey. He represents big-time players, and he's a guy who has been known to make big-time deals. Well, the fact that Eichel is still on the Sabres roster as we approach September when training camp is going to start is as befuddling as there is anything. And I don't know, at this point, the Sabres can't just move him for anything. They need to stick to their guns and get the pieces they thought they could get. Complicating that potential trade even further are reports today that Eichel is going to have the next surgery that he so wanted and the Sabres doctors said couldn't happen. What does that do to his trade value? Well, reportedly, nobody's ever had this neck surgery and come back and played hockey. So how does that impact the value of a guy who you're going to end up keeping on your roster likely for a while and paying a bunch of money? I don't know if Brisson can get another team to pony up. And if you're the Sabres, can you afford to cut bait and sell? This is a team already that's moved two of their best pieces in Ristolainen and Reinhardt. You're going to likely move Eichel. You haven't brought anybody in to make your team better. And Oh, yeah, they were the worst team in the league last year. And theoretically, they've gotten much worse. So if you're a Sabre fan, God help you. Because the Pagulas certainly aren't. This is just a, a clown show of an organization I, I see no light at the end of the tunnel where they're going to get better. The kid that they took number one overall in the draft, Powell, he's going back to Michigan. Not a surprise, but certainly something you hoped you could at least sell. It, it's just really, really unfortunate. little golf to talk about. Last weekend, the second-to-last event on the PGA Tour season, this weekend's the championship tour championship at East Lake in Atlanta last weekend the BMW championship they played down in Maryland and it was well received a lot of fans out there great to see Sunday afternoon Patrick Canelay and Bryson DeChambeau separated themselves from the pack and Cantlay is a guy that a lot of people don't know much about he's a newer name but right now after Sunday he ended up winning the tournament is the only player who's won three times this year. DeChambeau, we, we know about him. The controversial jackass that he is. Hits it very long. This was phenomenal golf. If you're into golf at all, what Cantlay did, making putt after putt after putt, Bryson hitting it 30 yards by him. Bryson making a great four after hitting it into the water on the tee. But Bryson being Bryson, at one point, telling Cantlay to stop walking as he was preparing to hit a shot. The fans who like to get after Bryson because he he's so thin-skinned. He's so inept socially to handle the criticism that comes his way, yelling, nice shot, Brooksy, go get him, Brooksy, in reference to the Brooks-Kapka-Bryson DeChambeau feud, which Kapka's backed out of. He's checked out of that feud. Bryson can't handle it. And there was an interesting report on ESPN yesterday that after Bryson missed a, a putt that would have extended the playoff to a seventh hole, he's obviously very upset, and rightly so. I don't like to defend him. Walking by somebody who yelled, nice going, Brooksy, and the reporter who wrote the story said that Bryson turned around, cursed at the fan, started towards him with rage in his eyes before telling a police officer to get the fan out of there. It could have been ugly. That could have been a situation that could have really gotten ugly. And, you know, Bryson, his camp needs to get to him to let him know that he is the villain. This guy wants to be admired and wants to be liked, but he, he, he isn't a, a person who's likable. He's a dick. He just is. And with the 
Ryder Cup coming up and, you know, USA Golf, it's going to be great theater. The fans who are traditionally partisan where it is, and this year it's 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 on U.S. soil at Whistling Straits in Wisconsin, if he fails in the Ryder Cup, I think the fans, even though they're American fans, are going to turn on him. And the only thing that's lucky for him is that it's not in Europe where the fans, I think, would really get after him. This, this is going to be interesting to watch because, look, for all the talk about how far he hits it, the better story with Bryson DeChambeau is how well he plays, not how far he hits it. Yeah, he hits it a mile, but he's an excellent putter, and he's in contention almost week in, week out. He has become a great player, not just somebody who hits it a long way. He just cannot handle himself well enough to get the fans to actually buy into him and support him. Instead, they'd rather bust his balls and he can't handle it. So something to keep an eye on there. But Sunday afternoon, if you watch that playoff, that was great, great theater. The last thing I wanted to talk about is the result of the name image likeness thing that's going on in college athletics and how it pertains to certain schools. When you're now a recruit and you're somebody who's going to play somewhere in college, the name image likeness opportunities are going to be part of the equation. If you're, say, an Alabama football player, you're going to have opportunities that if you're a Syracuse football player, you simply don't have. So while you might be a bench player at Alabama versus a starter at Syracuse, the opportunities to make money at Alabama are going to be much greater than they are at Syracuse, so you may choose that opportunity instead. This bit Syracuse in the ass last week on the basketball court. Kamari Lance is a four-star recruit who was coming in in the 2022 class. A class that, by the way, is with Lands was very well regarded. One of the better classes Jim Beheim has had in a couple decades, to be honest with you. Now Lance is decommitted to Syracuse. Reason? He's exploring schools that give him a better name, image, likeness opportunity. Look, Syracuse has recruiting issues as, as, as it is. That coach is 75 years old. How much longer is he going to be there? How much more can you take of Jim Beheim if you're a player? Because he's not going to play man-to-man. He's not going to let you run up and down the court like other schools do and showcase your offensive game. He's a very controlling coach. So while you're trying to showcase your skills – to get to the next level, Jim Beheim's system, in some cases, suppresses those skills. Now there's concerns about the ability to make money name, image, likeness. Because let's face it, Syracuse is in a very big market. And economically, it's struggling. Who's going to pay you to represent Syracuse University? Who's going to pay you in Syracuse to be your guy? Whereas some places big cities, there's a ton of money out there. This could be a real big problem for Syracuse going forward. Could expedite the loss of Jim Beheim because I've said for years that Jim Beheim, when he leaves, and it's coming soon, again, the guy's 75 years old. When he leaves Syracuse, what happens to that program and who do they hire to try to maintain it? Syracuse University could be the next DePaul or UNLV, universities of former glory that have now fallen on hard times, inability to recruit, and with a football program that's in the dumps, the athletic programs at Syracuse University are really, really struggling. Something to be concerned about, in my opinion, going forward with all this conference realignment. Syracuse could be a team that eventually is playing musical chairs and doesn't find a chair to sit sit on late in the game. It's too soon to worry about that, but keep that in the back of your mind because I think this name-image likeness thing is another potential nail in the coffin of Syracuse basketball post 
Jim Beheim. That's it for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Next week, our football preview will get you ready for all the things you need for week one in the NFL season. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.